Uh, God, we ask you that you would just give us ears to hear, uh, to learn, to grow. Um, God, more importantly, I pray that not just learning, not just hearing, God, but may we have hearts that want to line up with who you are and what you say. God, our consciences would be shaped and made by you, that we become sensitive in our hearts to you, God, um, and truly wanting to allow you to shape us and to make us into your likeness and your image. Because, God, as our creator, we were designed and created by you, for you, and that's how we function and that's how we flourish. And when we, as the clay, say to the potter, we want to be made into something different, um, we, we resist the hand of the maker, we resist your intentions, and we bring forth brokenness and destruction and ruin and shame and hurt and pain upon our lives and upon other people. So God, uh, may your word reshape us into being people that say, yes, Lord, to you in all your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to let my uh, introductory words be pretty uh, short. Uh, so we've been going through a series for kind of a lengthy time through the book of Acts. We took a break from that. Um, this is about five weeks ago we took a break. We're actually in week four of a brand new series. And what we've been calling basically the image of God as it's displayed in these four main um, very important uh, cultural topics of race, gender, sexuality, and life. These are and the reason why we uh, chose these four topics is for one, each one of these um, represent in some way, a very important uh, cultural crossroad or intersection in our culture and our society today that around these topics are all forms of opinions and sometimes angst and frustration and um, disappointment and argumentation and so on and so forth. And so what we want to do is to not turn away from these really important topics, um, but actually address these topics. And there's Really, three specific reasons why we are seeking to do this. I'll go through these real quickly because we've already gone through this past several weeks. I'll go through it quick. One, for the purpose of clarity and comfort. Because uh, there's so much angst and anxiety around these, we feel it's important to uh, speak to these so that we can have some level of security or clarity or comfort. And uh, at the end of the day, it's, this is driven by motivation that the pastors of Calvary Slow, uh, myself included, one of the teachers, um, want to be, be good pastors that really, truly care and tend for your souls. Two, we want to be biblically faithful because each of these topics, even though they play out uh, loudly um, in the uh, cultural, political sphere on Facebook, in Twitter feeds, in, uh, over you know, uh, dinner tables, um, we also believe first and foremost these are actually topics that are addressed in Scripture. Uh, the subject of gender, the subject of sexuality, all of these things are actually addressed by God, which means God has something to say about them, which means we as followers of Jesus should want to know what God has to say about these things. So at least we can begin to weigh in and allow them to begin to inform and transform our hearts. So thirdly, so secondly, we want to be faithful to Scripture. Thirdly, we want uh, to be walking as true disciples of God. It's for the purpose of discipleship. Because each, God has placed us in America, 2017, in the, mix, in the midst of a crazy, uh, just unbelievably incendiary culture. And because many of us, you know, we have Facebook accounts and we find ourselves working with people that are filled with anxiety. Uh, that's not by accident. God has put us in this context, that we live in this country. We live in this time. We live in this day. We live in this era. Uh, we live with all these luxuries and benefits and so on and so forth that we have. 
And God has called us to a very unique task of living out his name in the midst of all of this apparent chaos. So we want to be good disciples. In some ways, this is no different than throughout all history. I mean, every Christian who's ever followed Jesus throughout all history, any Jew that sought to be faithful to Yahweh throughout all the Bible, they had their own unique sets of challenges and difficulties and hardships that they were faced that uh, put them in the context of saying, how am I going to be faithful? To Yahweh, how am I going to be faithful to Christ in the midst of this? So different for us. We have a unique set of challenges that we are to face. And this is, that happens to be, you know, our lot, what we're trying to face. Um, one other final thing before I go on any further is uh, we are taking Slido questions. Um, um, I, honestly, to be really quite frank, I've, I, I came across this not too long ago, so I'm still learning how to figure this out. Um, I had no idea what type of uh, response this sermon would actually generate, but there were like dozens of responses just from first service, which meant that there's a lot of questions, and um, I'm not going to be able to get back to them. So I'm actually currently figuring out some ways in which we can be creative and answer this question. Someone had suggested to me after first service, maybe start like a private Facebook group that's linked to our Calvary Slow page, and then, I don't know, maybe I'll do like Facebook Live or um, I'm not really sure exactly how we're going to try to answer some of these questions, but there's absolutely no way I can just tell you right now we're not going to be able to answer all of them um, in, our, in our time here, um, but that should not in any way uh, discourage you from actually uh, you know, buying into it and asking your question or upvoting a question that's already uh, presently there. Next slide. Uh, as we go on to begin to think about and uh, ask kind of the bigger question that we've been asking over the past several weeks, which is what would our community look like uh, if Christ was truly king and not the cultural idols of race, gender, sex, power, comfort, security, so on and so forth. So what we're basically saying is that within the context of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that what, what that means is that God takes over our lives. God calls us to trust him. Um, and what that means is that certain things that we have once trusted, given our hearts over to, trusted in, um, those things are, are known throughout Scripture as idols, which means we give them our attention, we give them our, our you know, the Bible's word for that, we, we, we find them worthy, the Bible word for that is worship, we devote our energy, our thoughts, our processes, our energy to those things, and, and what the Bible actually says to us about idols is to not to cultivate relationship with idols, to not to nurture those things, but actually to expose them, to rip the masks off of them so that um, we can then truly see rightly who God is and see rightly how those things are uh, that were good things that were elevated into God things. So again, if you look at the list here, all of these things on here are actually really good things in and of themselves. They're not by definition, by nature, evil things, race, gender, sex, power. None of these things are evil. Um, But when they become elevated to a position of being greater than or higher than or more significant than God, they have this destructive capacity to them that will not only destroy you, but will oftentimes destroy others through you. So again, what we've been saying, racism by example, is a perfect example of this. When one views their race as greater than or more central or more significant than any other race on planet Earth, there's a tendency to have this uh, ethnocentrism which is, uh, by definition, by Bible terms, idolatry. It's idolizing. It's an idolatry of race over Christ. It's worshiping one's ethnicity over God. And by definition, that makes you a racist. It makes you one who has, now you have an obligation to fight for your nation, right? Extreme patriotism. It forces you to have to uh, put down and to shun and to attack others that are not like you. 
And, and that's by definition what racism is. It really, at the end of the day, the way Bible-believing followers of Jesus would describe it, is it's an idolatry of race. So the question that we're asking is, what would it look like if these typical idols did not have power over us? What would it look like if we truly followed Jesus, truly followed the designer, the one who created us, the one who breathed life into our lungs, the one who designed us to function and flourish and thrive and grow and interact with him and interact with others on a level that's actually rehumanizing instead of dehumanizing. And, and that's what we're saying, is that what that should look like should be the church. Should be the church. That's what the New Testament's uh, portrayal is, is that God is actually doing something in this world whereby he's remaking a community of people that these idols are no longer given power and authority over their lives, uh, but Christ is given power and authority over people's lives, and therefore that name is called the church. So we hope to become a church, hope to be formed, to become people that truly care and love for one another, not raise one ethnicity over another, not raise sex over uh, higher than what it should be, but so that we would see Jesus as central in all these things. Next slide. Um, as we kind of move into this, uh, one of the things we mentioned last week and the week before last is we have to deal with the subject of the Bible. So followers of Jesus um, follow Christ, but we follow Christ as we see him revealed in the scripture. So there's no way around this. We have to deal with the subject of scripture. This is a really important and weighty subject that we have to address and tackle. Because the, the, the flip side of this is to say something like this. And this is kind of common and popular within today's culture. Um, and it makes a lot of sense why. I'll explain it why in a moment. But to say something like this. Well, I love Jesus. Jesus is really good. But the scripture, I don't trust. It's so sexist. It's so outdated. It's chauvinistic. It's... Uh, retrograde, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's Neanderthal, it's completely obscure and ridiculous for today's modern culture. And really what we're doing is we're looking at scripture, this 2,000-year-old book plus 3,000, 3,500-year-old book with lenses, with, with filters that are 2017, that are influenced by modern television, modern media, modern culture, modern music, all these things. And then we have this tendency to look at this ancient book and be like, it's ridiculous. Now, the problem with that, we've been saying with that is, especially if you are a follower of Jesus, that is problematic. Because Jesus loved the scripture. Jesus breathed the scripture. Jesus quoted the scripture. Jesus even says over and over and over again, if you did like a study to kind of determine how many times does the passage appear in Christ, and this was all done in accordance with the scripture, Jesus literally lived his life in accordance to the script, the scripture. Everything Jesus did was in accordance to the scripture. You can walk away and say that Jesus just literally lived, breathed, taught, focused on his entire life was to fulfill scripture. So if you say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the scripture, I have this very horrible taste in my mouth towards scripture, that's an incongruency you have to at some point begin to wrestle through and think through. And, and I would encourage you, don't avoid that. Like, definitely uh, approach it. And recognize there's, there's no shortage of voices, no shortage of ink that's been spilled, no shortage of trees that have been slaughtered over the subject of how important the scripture is throughout the many years since it was first brought into this world. But do wrestle with it. It's really important because we would say scripture is life. It is the God breathe revelation of God himself. That is, if we follow it, if we allow it to do what it's intended to do, we'll breathe forth life into how we live. Now, that being said, the question of how do we interpret 
This book is very significant, very important. So there are sometimes people will say, well, I don't listen to you know, commentators or I don't read books. I just read the scripture and I just take the scripture at face value. And I would suggest and push back gently and humbly and say, no, you don't. You do not. Everybody reads scripture with a lens. I don't care who you are. Everybody. Nobody approaches the scripture free from lenses. We all have them. But the question is, what lenses do we see the scripture through? That's an important question to answer. Most of us, most of the time, we don't even know that we have lenses on how we read scripture. And this is one of the reasons why it can, you know, uh, you, you can have a sage that's been a follower of Jesus for you know, 70 years. Maybe they're 90 years old and they've been following Jesus, Jesus since they were 20. And they still, if they're truly humble and honest, they would say, I'm still learning how to figure out this thing. <laughs> you know, 70 years of following Jesus, that's like three times as old as some of you guys here. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's what the scripture is all about. It's like, we're not always going to fully understand and comprehend the magnitude of this incredible book, which means it raises the question, how do we interpret this Really important book. And this raises the question of what's uh, commonly called hermeneutics. Don't be afraid by that word. It's just a big word. You won't find it in the Bible because it's not a Bible word. It just simply means the art or the uh, action of interpretation. How do you interpret this book? And we said last week, and this is by way of review, in case you weren't here, I'll go through these things really quickly. Number one, scripture. These are some principles of hermeneutics. How we could read the scripture in an important uh, distinctive way. One, scripture does not contradict itself. Rather, scripture actually interprets itself. So one of the things that's important to know is that there's going to be times when you read passages in scripture that seem obscure or difficult or hard to understand or a little bit fuzzy. Well, there's an important understanding about scripture is that if there's a passage that you read that's a little bit obscure or difficult to understand, just, just note that there's another passage somewhere in this really big book, right, really big book, like this big, that will probably explain that. But you've got to give time, and you've got to go to the right source to kind of figure out where that's at, which means uh, in our culture that just says, I want instantaneous answers right now at the you know, tap of a finger, um, sometimes it doesn't work that way. So we need to dig deep. We need to allow patience and a sense of uh, importance leveled to this, this degree of understanding of Scripture. So first of all, Scripture does not contradict itself. Rather, it interprets itself. Secondly, every text must be understood in its context, both historical, cultural, and social, which means that you're going to find that there are passages, like we'll look at here today, we'll look at some passages that are typically called texts of terror, um, and they're given a, a, that title because they're the, they're the big ones that oftentimes get avoided in church context because of what it seems like they're saying. So, so we've got to understand those things within their historical context, because the Bible, first and foremost, there's passages that were actually written to people. And when we're reading them from 2,000 years away, uh, we have to first of all ask, like, how did the original hearers of this understand what was being read to them? And how did the original writer intend for this to be read? Th- those are important questions to ask. And then we can begin to ask the questions of application. What's the Bible actually speaking and saying to me? So that being said, the third one is common sense is, is ultimately necessary. All right, next slide as we jump into this. One of the things that we noticed from last week um, and the reason why we're actually looking at, and I'll just give you the title of today's message, all right? It's super, super creative. Ready? It's Gender Roles Part 2. You're welcome. You're welcome. So the question is, how did we get here? Here's how we got here. Number one, when we started looking at the subject of gender, all right, um, there's a lot of questions that came to me 
um, by way of Slido, by way of email, by way of just interaction with people. And they were asking all sorts of details like, well, how, how do gender roles play out? How should a woman respond or act? Or how should a man conduct himself in the context? And how does the church respond to ordaining women and so on and so forth? So it raised a lot of questions, which I'm really happy because what that tells me is you guys aren't actually sleeping even though your eyes might be closed. That's really encouraging to me as one that spends my entire life talking to you guys. So the point is, is that I, that was encouraging to me. So I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm going to I'm gonna give you guys a couple sermons. I spent a lot of time preparing just for you. You're, you're welcome. So that's how we got here. Gender roles. Gender roles part one last week. Gender roles part two is what we're going to be looking at here today. So because you guys have been asking about these questions. And the questions, by the way, you guys have been asking are awesome. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to ask them or upvote them. They're really, really good or sending me emails. So hopefully, hopefully I will be able to at least to some degree answer some of these questions. But one of the things that we looked at last week that was, uh, that was part of the subject matter of gender and gender roles, is that we saw that there is, however you want to define gender roles, uh, the way that the Bible understands gender roles is it's deeply connected to the order of creation. Deeply connected to the order of creation. So you have this creation order, you have home, and then it plays out within the home and as well then without in the church. Okay, uh, next slide. Um, so really, one of the things uh, that we've been talking about as far as leadership is it has to do with God Within this, li- this line or this order of creation, man being first, uh, man was first in that line of order, then the woman came from the man, and then we, we, the rest of the New Testament sees this as sort of a, an order where man is given a unique task of leadership. But the question is, what does that mean? In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that the subject of leadership has been so horribly distorted in our modern culture that, that to even identify a really good, legitimate, pure uh, definition of, of, of leadership is very difficult and hard to find. And here's why. We've seen so many abuses of leadership in the culture, in the presidency, and I'm not just saying this president, I'm saying even just past presidencies, in, in culture at large, in politics, even in forms of the church, that there is an abuse of leadership. And abuse of leadership looks like something like this. Somebody has all sorts of power. They use that power to manipulate, manipulate somebody else. They use their power to leverage benefit blessing for themselves from somebody who is weaker or lesser or subordinate to them. Does that make sense? That, what I just described, is ubiquitous in culture, but it is not how the Bible defines leadership. This is really important for you to understand this. Here's where we have a massive clash of definitions. Culture's definition of leadership, radically different than Bible's definition of leadership. So, leadership is not domination, but rather it is the giving of oneself for the good and flourishing of another. Jesus is the paradigmatic figure of leadership. Next slide is a quote from Kathy Keller, uh, Tim Keller's wife. She says this. When or Jesus defined, and we'll get to scripture in just a moment here. I'm just trying to set the stage, so we'll type. Um, Jesus redefined authority when he washed his disciples' feet. Did you catch that? What does leadership look like in scripture? How does Jesus redefine he doesn't just define it, he redefines it, he takes it back, he hijacks it, if you would, takes this word that has been distorted and ruined and messed up and soiled and broken, and he says, I'm going to show you what true leadership ultimately, true headship ultimately looks like. And what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet, which is, which is an act that Jesus basically says, here's what good leaders do. They give their lives for those that are under them. 
They wash them. They cleanse them. They give entirely all that they are for the other. So he says, or she goes on to say, Jesus redefined authority when he washed his disciples' feet. Biblical leadership and authority is about giving oneself away sacrificially for the other's benefit and good. Both male and female are called by God to sacrifice in different ways. The women get to play the Jesus role in submission, and men and the elders of the church get to play the Jesus role in sacrificial serving. It's a great quote. She just goes on to say. Next slide. Just kind of move on through this. Uh, two uh, things I want to say real quick before we move on into the passages we'll look at is the subject of um, posture. And I think it's really important to just kind of say a couple things about this. One is that what I hope to accomplish today is as best as I can, I want to try to at least convey to you or communicate to you um, my understanding uh, as well as the elders of Calvary Slow's understanding of some very challenging, difficult passages of Scripture, all right? Um, and, and I want to do the best that I can so that at some way, to some degree, it would at least be convincing enough for you to, um, to understand. But I also realize, again, I'm, I'm, I have a realistic perspective that, that may not necessarily be convincing for all of you. And that's okay, because the flip side of this is even if there are some divergent opinions as to how we have gotten to the subject matter or how we've gotten to the opinions that we have, um, these should not be matters that, that divide uh, the church family, because God's family is big enough, our our church family definitely is big enough to have differing opinions. But what we would desire, what we would hope is what the writer of Hebrews describes in Hebrews 13, 17. He says uh, that that what we would hope is that you would have confidence, nonetheless, um, in your leaders and ultimately submit to their authority because, as he says, they keep watch over your soul as those who have to give an account. So in other words, um, on the one hand, my hope is to cogently, thoughtfully present a case uh, for sort of a divinely ordered gender role, otherwise known as, a.k.a. Uh, complementarianism. It's just kind of the big word. And again, there's all sorts of abuses to that word as well. But I want to at least try my best to ch- present somewhat of a cogent case for that, for you guys. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, I realize that that may not necessarily take the case. Um, but my hope is that instead, that you would at least understand that the, that the, that the opinions we've come to and the positions that we've kind of held... We have not gotten there um, based upon a rationale for patriarchal, sexist, subcultural traditionalism. In other words, we're not motivated in any way, shape, or form by sexism or patriarchal uh, subculture that's trying to suppress. In fact, quite the very opposite. We have women in every form and facet of ministry in Calvary Slow, with the exception of elder. And we'll hopefully explain why? We have women worship leaders. We have women that oversee budgets. We have women that are part of our financial board, that are part of our financial team, women that teach, women that lead, women that uh, educate, train, women on every level of this church community, with the exception of, of elder, ordained elder. And hopefully, at least, I will try to explain why. So if anything, you would walk away and just say, okay, at least that's somewhat of a rational. I don't necessarily agree with it, but the posture of this church is one that hopefully, hopefully, presents the love of Christ, and I can get behind that. So, anyways, that being said is the second thing, is that we ultimately hope to be a community of people that really practice what we profess, that we truly practice the importance of raising up uh, women to a level of equality within God's community. So, that being said, let's jump in. Next slide. Ready? Texts of terror. Drum roll, please. Um, that phrase actually comes from a 
book written by a guy by the name of Phyllis Tribble, and uh, really has not necessarily anything to do with the text that we're going to be looking at here, uh, but comes to be known within our modern-day culture that any text, any passage in the Bible that rubs or bristles against our modern-day sensibilities, um, things that kind of seem a little bit incongruent. So in other words, we are, for the most part, we're products of culture, right? Would you agree with that? We are products of culture. Um, um, in other words, most of us, I think, we can probably quote more songs that come from popular artists or quote more lines from a TV show than we can quote Bible passages. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that in any negative type of way other than to say that we are products of our culture. We imbibe culture. We think culture. The hope of a Christian is to not allow culture to shape our mind our understanding, but to allow scripture to reshape, to reform, to transform who we are and how we think and how we live. That being said is that there are times we read passages in Scripture that seem radically outdated from our current culture. And therefore, our tendency is to either belittle the Scripture and say, well, I can't trust the Scripture. Because there you go. See, it's regressive. It's Neanderthal. It's ridiculous. And therefore, I dismiss it. But I still have a craving of love for God, so I want to follow God, but I definitely don't want to follow Scripture. Or we just uh, we circumvent certain passages that are hard because they, they seem to be saying something maybe that, that, that seems very offensive to modern-day sensibilities. What I want to encourage you to think about is don't be offended. Um, you guys know who uh, J.D. Sears or J.P. Sears is? You know who that guy is? Nobody? Like two of you know who he is? Okay, I won't even go down there. But he does this great video. I just posted it on my Facebook the other day. It was so funny. It was about like how to be offended, I think is kind of what it was. It was hilarious. It's a great cultural critique on how we are so easily offended by every little thing. So it's funny. Anyways, um, that being said, sorry, that was a flop. But the point is, is that we have these tendencies to be offended by stuff. And I think that we treat the scripture the same way. That scripture offends me here, or it doesn't make sense to me, or bristles against the way I understand life should be, and therefore, I'm not going to read it. What I would encourage you to take a different approach to see scripture as life, as life-giving. And yes, it's a message. It comes from God. It's outside of our world for all times, and therefore, it will critique your cultural understanding and sensibilities. It should critique your cultural understanding and sensibilities. But the call of a Christian is to say, how can I faithfully live out and obey what God's word, his life-giving word, is calling me to with fidelity and joy? How can I do that? So that's what I want to suggest for us as we just kind of begin to take a look at some of these texts of terror. Um, Let's read the passage. Let's just read it, and we'll begin to make some comments on it. So number one, we'll take a look at actually a handful of passages, three to be exact, um, there's four main ones that you could spend some time looking at. So we'll take a look at, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, then the fourth one, which is Ephesians chapter 5, I'm actually not going to address. Um, the reason why is because it actually addresses on several other occasions. It's one of the more common ones. It's the one, you know, where, you know, wives submit to your husband, like, um, husbands love your wives as Christ of the church. Um, we've talked about that many other times in other times past. Um, and there's also really good material that you can find on the internet. I'll give you a great recommendation right now. Tim Keller uh, has an excellent book called The Meaning of Marriage. I think it's chapter 5. He takes the entire chapter and just simply unpacks and exposits Ephesians chapter 5 and does a masterful job. So does a far better job than, than I could. So there you go. Let's jump into this. First Corinthians chapter 14. Ready? It says this. As in all the churches of the saints... 
The women should keep silent in all the churches or in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Next slide. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are the command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And what Paul seems to be saying here seems pretty profound. And he finishes all this stuff up by saying in verse uh, 37, what I'm writing to you is as the command of God. So how significant, how important is what Paul's saying? Paul is basically uh, calling out, saying what I'm telling you is actually not just my words, but these are the command of God. So what is he talking about? It seems at initial reading to be extremely sexist from initial reading, right? Because that's how we would read it. We read it through a cultural filter that looks like, wow, it's like he's telling women to just not talk. It's really rude and harsh and critical. But what is he actually saying? And this is where it's really important to understand, first of all, what he can't be saying. Now, how do we know what Paul can't be saying? Because, again, this is where that principle of hermeneutics come in. We compare Scripture with Scripture. We allow Scripture to interpret itself. So we go to other passages in the Scripture, in the Bible, that give us more information, that tell us a little bit more about what's happening in terms of the landscape, as opposed to our little narrow-minded pinhole perspective and then cross forth, uh, put forth judgment upon something and then dismiss it. So what else was happening here? Okay, so the next slide. Um, one of the things that we recognize is that he cannot be saying is that he cannot be saying that women are insignificant to the life of the church. There's no possible way that it could be what he's saying. Why do we know that? Because elsewhere throughout the New Testament, we see women being literally so significant, so important to the actual purpose and function and flow and movement of the church. Uh, here's a handful of them. 1 Corinthians 11, 5 we're told that, uh, that women were literally praying alongside. It's kind of given some instructions as to how women can pray and prophesy. So women are speaking, prophesying, and praying alongside men. A couple other passages, Acts 1 um, and Acts 2. Uh, that's the passage where it says that when the Holy Spirit came, it says that all flesh, both male and female, are prophesying, speaking out in the congregation, talking, communicating, bringing words from God to the community. And then Acts... Uh, uh, 21, it's the description of, of a guy, I think his name's Philip. He's got a, a handful of daughters and says, and they're all prophets. So they all speak. So it's really, really important. Now, again, if the church, if the writers of the New Testament were attempting to silence women, why would they add these really significant voices? Why would they add, oh, and Philip, by the way, had four daughters and they were all prophets, prophetesses in the church. Um, th- th- it cannot be that the church is trying to silence women. It cannot be that the Bible is regressive or Neanderthal-like in trying to oppose or suppress or silence the voice of what the scripture actually describes as a very, very important, significant role within the church, women, i.e. So Acts chapter 8, verse 26, it says that uh, the story that there's a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, and this gal Priscilla, she accompanied her husband, and they approach this guy by the name of Apollos. He was a really gifted, unique preacher, communicator. And yet they pull him aside and they help him to understand the way of God more fully. So in other words, we see that there's also within this context a gal not only correcting but also bringing instruction to a, to a man. Think about that. To a man. A, a woman is actually correcting and instructing a man. In a patriarchal society. And the Bible actually records that. It, it cannot be that the Bible is trying to silence the voice of women. If it did, that would have been a very easy 
a detail that you simply omit and to leave out. If it was attempting to simply say that women are, are not worthwhile given the effort within the context of the church or the movement of Jesus' people. Third thing is we see in Philippians 4.3 is we see that Paul actually describes uh, two ladies and he says, uh, these girls have been co-partners with me in the ministry, um, uh, uh, partnering uh, with me in, in preaching the gospel. So here's what we see so far. Just, just in the passage that we just looked at, that women in the early church, they're praying, prophesying alongside men, they're correcting, instructing men, they are evangelizing the gospel alongside the apostle Paul, who is a single man. <laughs> so again, what I would first of all assert is that whatever is being spoken in that passage in Corinthians cannot in any way, shape, or form be an attempt to say once and for all women are insignificant in the community of God's people. Can't be saying that. So what is it saying? Let's jump in even further and dig a little bit deeper. This is where it's really important to understand a little bit of the context. So this kind of plays into another, really the second uh, hermeneutical principle, which is What's the context? Like, why was this passage even being written in the first place? What was going on here? What was happening in the context of this Corinthian church? Uh, Corinth, by the way, was like, was like a city, a really important city. Um, I think in modern-day Turkey slash Greece. It's kind of like a, a port city connecting these two areas. And uh, Paul was writing to these people, basically communicating to them uh, important instructions and guidelines as to how to conduct themselves. In fact, if in your Bible you might have kind of like a, a header, the header might read something like this, orderly worship and whatnot, because that's exactly what's happening. So here's what the passage reads, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 26. I'll read it. He says, what then, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Uh, let all things be done for the building up. And then he speak in a tongue. If there are any, uh, if, if there will be only two or at the most three, and in turn, let them have some form of order and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself uh, and to God. So up until this point, what we see so far, just simply using this interpretive principle, that up until this point in the ordered service, women have an active role. Because we already just read. Women were part of the speaking, the communicating, the prophesying, even speaking in tongues. Again, that's a whole other subject. If you're like, what's tongues? And if you ask me that question, I don't, there's no way I can answer that right now. So don't answer it. Don't ask it. and Don't upvote it because I will not go there right now. It's a total rabbit trail. But one other time, and I've talked about this before, you can go dig around on our website and find the messages that have to do with that. But the point is, is that this is something important that women were a part of. They were a part of the actual unfolding movement of the Holy Spirit within the context of ordered worship. So, verse 29 goes on to say, let two or three of the prophets speak and let the others weigh in in what they said. This is where it seems, according to many commentators, Bible scholars, teachers, it appears that Paul is actually pivoting. Paul is actually saying, okay, at this point, here's where we need to put a little bit more of a focus upon what's happening in the context of ordered worship. And Paul goes on to add um, that he says, and let others weigh what they said. So here's what seems to be happening. Um, there seems to be playing into a cultural context of how uh, the early church functioned within their church gatherings, how they gathered. It appears that the way they gathered was very similar to the way that the Jewish synagogue in the first century 
gathers. There's a lot of carryover. Why? It seemed to make a lot of sense because most of the early Christians were what? They were Jewish. They were Jewish. So when they started gathering as Jesus people, do you think they were like, well, let's figure out a brand new service, and let's have a guy in skinny jeans play music, and let's make sure we get a laser show, and someone throw on the fog machine, because that's how church should be done? Not at all. Not at all. They just, they just continued meeting the way they had always continued meeting. Only difference was Jesus was the center part. Does it make sense? So they just continued in very similar tradition, the way that they had always done that. And we'll look at some of the distinctions about that in a moment here. But in verse 30 it says, And if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And if uh, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches. So here's an important element that seems to be going into play here right now. So I want to read another quote from Kathy Keller, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. She says this, if I'm reading 1 Corinthians rightly, now, someone might ask, well, how, how come I'm not giving these commentators, commentaries here right now? Why am I reading quotes? Um, simply put, um, when I read a passage or I read a quote from a book or an author or a preacher or a speaker that does a 100% better job than I can, um, I, I, I feel it's my duty to do a better job by giving you guys the best meat and information I can, but I just, I'll just quote from them. That's why I quote C.S. Lewis all the time, because he says things 100 times better than I could ever say them. So in my opinion, Kathy Keller has some really important things to say that if I had the amount of years under my belt that she had, then maybe at some point I'll get to that level. But right now, um, she does a pretty good job of saying it. So that's, that's why I'm letting her speak instead of myself. So she says this, if I'm reading 1 Corinthians rightly... It seems much of the letter was intended to rein in practices of enthusiastic believers who are having experienced new freedom in the gospel, were now drawing false inferences from it and overshooting the mark. In other words, they ate meat that were offered to idols, despite uh, being insensitive to other weaker consciences. They placed too much significance on speaking in tongues. Uh, in, in the present context, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, reads as an encouragement to retain divinely ordered gender roles. Uh, and they, she, he describes the cultural sign of which was head covering. So don't ask me about head coverings right now. I know it might be on some of your minds, but I, again, it's just one of those questions that uh, it's, we can spend a lot of time talking about it. It was a cultural sign. But again, the point simply is this, that women were able to speak part of the church, be a part of the community of Jesus' people. Even while women, oh, sorry, can we go back? Even while women publicly exercise their spiritual gifts in a broad scope, scope of ways. Okay, next slide. She goes on to say, clearly women are not prohibited in scripture from most kinds of public speaking. Only one. So whatever that one is that Paul seems to be prohibiting, that's where she begins to unpack. Only one. The teaching that's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, is actually off limits to women. So we've got to ask the question, then what is that? As the early church appears to have taught a model of worship based upon the template of Jewish synagogue worship. Okay, next slide. So the question naturally arises, what is synagogue worship. Again, this is where reading the Bible, understanding in its cultural context, it seems clearly that whatever Paul is prohibiting um, seems to be in line with this order of creation and also seems to be in line with, with really mainly only thinking about the context of the, the church uh, worship service um, as it plays out. So what is on Paul's mind? Well, again, this is where I think the, the work of understanding a little bit of the context of how they would have conducted their service is important. Now, most, as I mentioned, uh, probably would have followed something along the lines of a template of the synagogue worship. So what does that mean? Number one, it means that for the most part, 
uh, the early synagogue as well as perhaps the early church did not necessarily have permanent or uh, trained clergy or leaders, elders. So there was a tendency to have people that were not necessarily um, educationally trained or taught in seminary or even for that matter like paid as we would think about, you know, paid pastor doing what he pastor stuff does, whatever that is, like playing golf or surfing or on Facebook, because that's what pastors do. Um, but the reality, I'm just joking, but the point of the matter is, is that she goes on, uh, we go on to see that the idea that's being kind of unpacked here is that occasionally traveling rabbis and teachers, they were invited to speak. And this was no doubt the case with Jesus in these uh, various passages that are right here, Matthew, um, and really, they're, they're, they tell the exact same story. So I'm not going to read them. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, just kind of reiterate what the story is um, out of Luke. And it's a story when Jesus comes in the synagogue. He opens up the scroll. It's a scroll. It's um, uh, Isaiah. I think it's like chapter 61. He opens it up, and he says, This day, this passage has been fulfilled in your midst. And he begins to read it. And there's some other thing that Jesus basically states. Um, so the second thing to note with regard to first century synagogue worship, which also may have influenced how the early church conducted their worship services, where they were to have rabbis um, and or slash elders uh, that sat in the front and they declared amen. So imagine in your mind uh, a, a group of chairs maybe sitting on the stage or maybe right in the front. And then you have these like important leaders and elders of the church uh, or, or, or important elders of the synagogue. And when an itinerant preacher or speaker or rabbi would come in from off the street. Um, he would open scripture. He would speak. He would talk about, hey, here's what I think the passage is saying. He would give his opinion. He would oftentimes quote other authors or say, you know, Rabbi Hillel would teach this and Rabbi Gamliel would say this. Here's what I think is maybe communicating. Going. And at the end of that, uh, that monologue, um, the elders of that synagogue and or church would then say, amen, amen. And that was their way of saying, hey, there's credence there's truth that was spoken. We've given our opinion over it, and we affirm what they're saying as being from God. They are the authority, which means author, the authority over that community that has placed their stamp of approval upon that message, that word that was being spoken. So with that in your back of your mind, go back to the story in Luke chapter 4, which is really significant, because this probably explains a little bit of the outrage that the religious leaders had towards Jesus. Because at the end of chapter 4, um, when Jesus is done giving a sermon, it actually says that the leaders of the synagogue were outraged and wanted to kill him. Why? I mean, Jesus gave a sermon. Like, what sermon actually makes people so outraged they want to kill them? Well, here's what happened. When Jesus opens the scripture, we're actually told that Jesus begins to speak. And before he begins to open up and unfold the rest of his remarks, he says these words. Verily, if you have it like an old King James Version, it says, Verily, verily, I say to you. So why is that so offensive? What Jesus is literally doing, he's saying, I mean, another way to translate that is amen, amen. Jesus is literally usurping the authority of these elders and saying, I'm not going to wait for you to validate what I have to say. In fact, I'm going to validate myself and my message at the beginning of my message, not at the end, because I am the authority here, not you. You can understand a little bit of the outrage. Jesus is usurping our authority. Who the heck is he? We should kill him. And that's what they did. So what seems to be happening here is something along these lines. I'm just simply giving you a little bit of the cultural background. There were elders, leaders in the church, typically men, always men in that context. Again, that raises the question, why? Um, Again, this is an important thing to maybe even throw out as far as an insertion into the story. 
So throughout the Old Testament, we see women doing anything, everything. I mean, we literally see women that were judges, if you're familiar with the story of judges. These were leaders. These were literally like on par with being uh, governing officials, leaders over the people. You had women that were prophets, women that spoke, women that communicated. You had women that were community leaders that like literally did incredibly amazing stuff for the preservation of the people of Israel. Think Esther, think Ruth, think Naomi, and storylines which God actually elevates and says, these are paradigms of virtue and righteousness and goodness and my spirit and my approval upon womanhood. But you will never have, in the Old Testament, women priests, women leaders, women prophets, but no women priests. And some have maybe even asked the question, well, what about the New Testament? Um, well, we, again, we have women prophets, we have women speakers, we have women communicators, women educators, women prayer, women involved in every part. But why did Jesus only choose 12 men that were part of this apostolic Commission. Again, I'm not, just sim- I'm, I'm not drawing any inferences necessarily from there. I'm just simply pointing out what Scripture points out. And there's a reason for that. I'm not always certain why God does what he does. But again, when it comes to Scripture, we just have to simply look at the data to ask the questions, how do we obey God in the midst of this? Is it restrictive? Is it destructive? Is it ruining other people? And really what's being asked within that context. So that's, I'm just simply trying to point out information as difficult, as easy as it would be for me to avoid this and just give you guys a sermon on like three reasons on how to be a nice person. Um, I, I want to at least spend time talking about these things because they're really significant and important in Scripture. Okay, next slide. We see Kathy Keller go on and she says this. Uh, one of the main issues within the early church and within Judaism was this construct of false doctrine, that there was always a danger of somebody coming in from the outside and poisoning people's minds with false teachings, false ideas. The same is true actually for today. It's a little bit more different in some ways in modern church. You know, we have eldership here, and we decide and oftentimes who's going to speak and who's not going to speak. But there's all sorts of ways in which, even in the modern church, there are dangers of bad doctrine infiltrating. Typically, today, it comes by way of podcasts and internet and Facebook and all sorts of books and things that might not line up with Scripture. But the point is is we see that false doctrine was one of the biggest enemies of the infant church. And to counter, uh, and, and the counter to it was to have a group of local elders chosen for the maturity in the faith whose job was to judge truth from heresy, whether from mouths of their own local congregation or from, the traveling, or from a traveling speaker. It appears likely that these elders may have been the first paid clergy in the, long, in the young church. Their function was critical. It is at this point where the prophets are being judged that the women are actually totally be silent. So again, going back to the passage where it says women be silent, she's saying that that's the pivot point, where uh, that passage that basically reads that there are those that are then to do the judging. Who are those that are to do the judging? Which goes on the next slide, and we'll carry this even further into 1 Timothy because there's an allusion to this, and this is why I think this passage will give us a little bit more light, and then I'm done. I'm, I'm done. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It says, Let a woman learn... Quietly, with all submissiveness, and I do not permit a woman to teach and exercise authority with men. Rather, she is to remain silent. Again, ouch. What does that mean? What does that mean? It sure sounds sexist. It sure sounds like Paul is attempting to just silence women and say, you have no voice in the church, and it can come across as harsh and condescending. But if you don't take the time to dig into the context and understand what's going on, we can derive all sorts of false notions from this. Again, 
it's important for us to dig deep and to ask those questions. What is not being said, what cannot be being said that women have no voice in church, because that, that would contradict everything else that Paul wrote and all the other writers and authors uh, 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 pointed out as far as the significance of women within church. But what is being said here? And this is where a lot of scholars, theologians, uh, people that have spent time studying and packing scripture have noticed that there's, there's a phrase in here that's really significant. And it's the phrase that focuses on a woman to teach and exercise authority. Now there's a word for this to describe this particular coupling of two words. I can't remember what it is. But it's basically when, uh, like, uh, like you say, nice and warm. All right, for example, when I, when I say I'm nice and warm, am I saying two different things? Am I saying I'm a really nice person and simultaneously I'm warm? Or am I saying, I'm just nice and warm? That's what a lot of scholars think that that's actually what's being said here, communicated here. It's not just saying teach and have authority, but it's a teaching that is synonymous with having a level of authority within that church, headship within that church, that is distinct from simply teaching. That's what seems to be focusing on this passage here. And again, I'll just read from her a couple other things and we'll wrap this up. Next slide. She goes on to say, this has been linked to 1 Corinthians 14 with the judging of the prophets and is followed immediately in 1 Timothy chapter 3 by a discussion on the qualifications of elders. So if you are familiar with the story in 1 Timothy, Paul's actually writing to a young man who's a pastor, he's an elder of a church, and he's saying, here's how I want you to set up churches. Uh, I want you to ordain and appoint men that can be elders. And, and what is an elder supposed to look like? And he gives some um, examples of that. Um, which are really significant and important. And he goes on to describe, he says, by, discussing, by discussion of the qualifications of elders, I find it not only plausible but unavoidable to come to the conclusion that women were being enjoined to silence, that is, forbidden to participate in a function, in a function that's re, that was reserved for elders alone. That's what she's saying. These men were tasked with judging personal and corporate faithfulness to the apostolic deposit of truth. So what she's describing is that these, these, these men, these elders, had a unique task in what she's saying, and many, many other scholars are saying, which I would actually align with and agree with, that what's being enjoined to the women in this context is that not in that role of eldership or like a father of the church. There's different roles that a woman can play out within that different or distinct from that particular one. Next slide, and we'll wrap this up. Kathy Keller goes on by finishing the statement. I'll wrap this up with a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'm done. It says, the teaching is called authoritative for two reasons. One, first, it was the final judgment. Um, the first is that it's, it is the final judgment of truth versus heresy. Uh, second, it's authoritative, teaching that's authoritative, is because it has the power of discipline. That is, the power to remove from the church body anyone who taught in defiance of the approved apostolic oral tradition. Next quote further on. This is one big quote from her, so uh, bear with me. Um, she says, if we look at the cloudier passage of 1 Corinthians 14 and ask the question, something is being forbidden here. What is it? We find the answer in the clearer passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is authoritative teaching. There's that phrase, authoritative teaching or teaching, which she describes it. Or, uh, let's see, where am I at? Uh, or teaching, the way she puts it, teaching with teeth in it. To make clear the distinction between this and other forms of verbal imparting of information, I've used an illustration when I myself have been in front of an audience of men and women teaching, she says, I say, next slide, if at the end of this seminar, you go home and you say, 
That was the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I don't believe a word she said. What will happen to you? Nothing. Nothing at all. If, however, you are called before the elders of the church and you're told, hey, Jesus Christ is God and he died and he rose bodily from the dead for our salvation, and you say, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard and uh, I have ever heard, you will either be denied membership or if you are currently a member, you will be exhorted to repent and change your beliefs. And that's what she describes, next slide, as teaching that has teeth in it. And I'll finish with this quote. Teaching with teeth in it. Teaching that is connected to an authoritative, a source, a headship type of a role within the context of leading a church family. Now, like I said, I may have not convinced you in any way, shape, or form. That's okay. I at least want to be clear where we stand, how we see things, and we come to it. I, I hope, again, to remind you of the posture that we hope to uh, take, that it's, it's okay to have differences on some of these things. This is not a salvation issue, so if you have differing opinions on this, that's okay. Uh, there's still a radically open welcomeness to any that are, has see things differently, because it's, it's, not, it's not an issue that we would ever divide over. But I'm going to finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to actually finish with a reading from Scripture. So bear with me, and we'll be done. C.S. Lewis says this, The kind of equality that implies that the equals are interchangeable, like counters or identical machines, is a legal fiction. It may be a useful legal legal fiction, but in the church, we turn our back on fictions. One of the ends for which sex was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and the sensitive figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. With the church, we are dealing with male and female, not merely as facts of nature, but as the living, I love this part, as the living and wonderful shadows of reality that are utterly beyond our control and largely beyond our direct understanding. Or rather, we are not dealing with them, as we soon shall learn if we meddle. They are actually dealing with us. And that's his way of saying, we cannot avoid the fact of gender. It's who we are. It's how God designed us. It bears his image. We can deny it, but if we do that, if we deny it, if we avoid it, if we seek to manipulate it or be creative with it or innovative with it, then it will be to, at some point, our own brokenness. At some point, our own shame. At some point, our own confusion. Or at some point, the mastery of one party over another to the subjugation of another. In other words, further destruction by way of oppression and brokenness and idolatry. Or... We can go to our maker and say, God, how did you design us? And as much as I want, God, I want to submit my heart, my will to understand that. So in closing, I'll finish with this. In closing, I'll finish with this. In all of this I've said, for some of you, this might be simply just challenging to understand. And that's fine. I understand that. I get that. You know, you can wake up now. We're almost done. For some of you, I, I get it. For, this, is like, this, this is hard to swallow. It's hard to like really like, ah, I don't know, I've kind of got a lot of questions. For others of you, uh, in your opinion, you might look at this through a filter and be like, I, I just, I cannot accept this. I refuse to accept this. But here's, no matter what type of spectrum you come, you approach, you think, you wrestle through these things, I, I just want to leave you with one final reality, and I want you to consider simply this. 
consider Jesus. And I want to read to you just simply out of the book of Philippians. This is Paul, again, the writer who, who just basically authored all of these texts of terror that we just read. Here's what Paul actually had to say about Jesus, and I'll finish with this. In fact, let me have the worship team come on up, and we'll just finish with a couple songs. And if we have time, maybe do a couple questions and uh, dismiss you guys. Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Just listen to what he has to say. Paul says this. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking upon himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the very name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And this is Paul's way of basically saying, look, when we wrestle with the question of what it, does it look like for us to live out obedience to God, what does it look like? How do we do that? How do we do that? It feels painful. It feels hard. It feels almost impossible. It feels absolutely countercultural. Culture, How do we do this? What Paul says is consider your God, who though he was the author, the creator of all things, all authority is in him, belongs to him. How did he use his authority? By submitting himself to becoming a servant. To wash feet of people who had a grave need to be washed. You and I. In other words, our salvation was simply because we have a God that was willing to do the very things that he is asking of us. To do. You know what that means? None of us are alone in living out our obedience to God. We have a God that has said, I will come alongside you in the midst of the painful obedience. And I'll walk with you because I will do it. As one author says, he had the nerve or the guts to even take his own medicine that he prescribed to us. It's beautiful. That's the gospel. It's always an invitation to trust a God that's trustworthy. So, why don't we stand Let's sing a couple songs and worship, respond to God. For some of you, it's maybe a matter of like just doing business in your heart with God and whatever circumstances are that bring you here today, taking those things to God and worshiping Him. So let me pray and sing. God, thank you for your great love. And, and we respond in worship and song and communion to you now.